Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Luke chapter 16. Uh, If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 875, Luke chapter 15. Turn there, if you would, so we can begin our study together. We move on from the prodigal son story, this uh, compilation, really, of of three parables that go together, the, the, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son, and, and now transitioning into a new chapter. It's easy, I think, oftentimes, for us in moving into a new chapter to think we're in a, a new segment of time, a new, uh, a new setting, as it were, a new context. And this morning, as we come to this passage, I think there are clues that are embedded in the passage that help us realize that we haven't actually transitioned away from the particular setting. We're we're in the same context, and now Jesus is transitioning his instruction away from the crowd, away from the tax collectors and sinners, away from the scribes and Pharisees, and now he wants to have this private conversation with his disciples. What will Jesus tell his disciples? What does he want them to know? What is the truth that he wants to draw out from these parables of lost things? How will he apply this to them? How will he help to invite them into the kind of discipleship, or at least maybe uh, confirm true discipleship for them so they know what relationship with the Father, relationship with God looks like? And as we're going to find in our message today, we're going to see that Jesus cares about stewardship. You have as, a, as kind of a title in your notes, Making Friends of Heaven. Well, we get that from the first and last verse in our passage for, for today in Luke chapter 16. Let me read this for us as we dive into our study. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. It says this, He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Now dropping down to verse 9, notice, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What in the world is going on? Jesus is going to focus on the significance of stewardship. Now, maybe those of you who are parents have taken some time to try to help your children understand the the need to steward what they have and to steward it well. Maybe you teens and children have heard heard your parents on a number of occasions to say, hey, whoa, stop. Don't use the knife to open up the the jar that way. There There are tools for that. Or what are you doing? Wearing your dress clothes out, digging holes in the backyard. I mean, we, we need to take care of our stuff. Or why are you carving your name into your bunk bed? <laughs> I, I'm sure none of you have that, that problem. We, we've learned how to steward our things well. Or at least we've been taught to steward our things well. Um, my parents did a did a... A great job trying to, trying to convince me of that. So, you know, I've got, I've got clothes that are probably a couple decades old, maybe. That's not an exaggeration. Still wearing them. Hey, you know, it's, it's great. You don't have to buy new stuff if, if they last. And um, well, I have furniture that our, my kids are using. 
that I grew up with. Um, my, my trundle bed, it's still being used by my daughter. Uh, the dressers are still in my, my son's room, just learning how to steward, it, steward things well. And so it's, it's moved around with me to California and to Chicago and Southern Ohio, and now it's made its way here. And I'm sure at some point it'll make its way other places too. What we learn about stewardship, that's, that's a principle that we've come to teach our kids. It's a, it's a principle that, that we have learned ourselves. And so, as you would imagine, since this is a principle we want to teach our children, it's embedded in culture of using things well, of stewarding things well. Of course, we would imagine that this is something that Jesus wants his disciples to learn. Learn to be a good steward. The parable that's before us today is hotly debated. (laughs) What is the, the context for the story? What, what is the underlying theme? What is the, the truths that, that Jesus is trying to convey? What, what is the, the nature of this manager and the way that he's dealing with his master's belongings and possessions? How is it possible that this master can con- commend him, as we're going to get to at the end? There have been pages and pages of ink sp- spilled on this particular parable. I'm not about to try to unravel all of the mysteries of the parable for you this morning, but but I do believe there are some clues. There are some clues for us as we look into this passage, not only to understand the context of this parable, but especially to understand the underlying message that Jesus is after. It is a message of stewardship. If you are a child of God, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if, if you have enjoyed the benefits of this repentance that Luke chapter 15 was talking about, where heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents, then 99 sinner, uh, righteous who need no repentance, if you're a part of that company of individuals who have come to a place of recognizing your sin, have repented of that sin, and turned to God, recognize the beauty and the wonder of the Father, as it were, in the prodigal son story, you've come to a place of recognizing how amazing he is to be able and willing to forgive you. If that is you this morning, then, then what you are is a steward. You are a steward of the things that God has entrusted to you. How do you, how do you steward God's stuff? How do we steward God's stuff? How do we represent God in the way that we handle the money and possessions that God has entrusted to us? That's what Jesus is after here. And Jesus has described this time and time again throughout his ministry. Chapter 16 is punctuated by by this truth because Jesus wants us to recognize that, that one of the biggest things that stands in the way of a deep, intimate, abiding relationship with God is the way that we view our possessions. Notice with me in the very first verse, there's some clues, like I said, that that kind of lead us to understand the setting. Notice this opening phrase, it says, he also said to his disciples. Now there are two conjunctions that are in this opening phrase. And these two conjunctions help us to know that a transition has happened in the story. There's a a companion thought that is 
connected to the previous thought, and it's either translated and or but or now. And then the fact that there's another conjunction there means it needs to be translated as also. So you could say and also or but also or now also, and and that kind of shows up in our text. The ESV has chosen not to translate the first uh, of those conjunctions. The New King James doesn't translate the first of those conjunctions, and that's just normal because of language and trying to help with the flow of grammar. But The New American Standard says, Now he was also saying to his disciples. The Legacy Standard Version says, Now he was also saying to his disciples. Now, okay, why is that so important? Well, because it's important to understand that Jesus is interested in teaching. Not just to his audience, but especially to his disciples. He's interested in those sinners and tax collectors that are represented in this audience. He's interested in the scribes and Pharisees that are represented in this audience. He he wants to invite them into a relationship with him that's only possible through repentance of sin and turning to Jesus. But, But here are the disciples overhearing these parables, and now there's some instruction for them. What is Jesus going to say? This suggests that in the flow of, uh, of these parables, that, that now Jesus is, is turning his attention to his disciples. He wants them to know something very important that is connected in some way, especially with the, the parable of the prodigal son. Our, our second clue is seen in verse 1, where we find that this dishonest manager was wasting his possessions, wasting the possessions of his master. This is the same word that Jesus uses to describe the prodigal in chapter 15, verse 13, where he says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. That, that, that's the same word. Wasted and squandered is the same Greek word for essentially throwing up the chaff in the wind, letting the wind just drive away the money. The squandering and wasting that's taking place. It's a word that's only used twice in the Gospel of Luke. First in the prodigal son story, and now in our story, captured here in Luke chapter 16, where, where, where we find there's a, an immediate connection now between these two stories, immediate connection between these thoughts. That's why I believe that Jesus is now turning to his disciples and wants them to know something more about this, this truth that he wants to describe third, we find in the story of the prodigal, you have this wealthy father. He's got this spacious lands. He's got this massive inheritance. He's got these significant gifts of a robe and a ring that he gives to his son. He has, has this fattened calf on hand, multitude of servants, obvious influence in the community. So this father is now represented I, I, kind of in a way by this rich man in his, in his wealth in chapter 16. And then fourth, you have this manager. He's not just any manager. He's not the slave or the servant that you would find in the prodigal son story. He's a, he's a manager, and the Greek word is oikonomos, which is the word for manager or steward. This word for oikos, which is house, a house manager. And here embedded in this story of the prodigal where this family is coming together, now we transition to this family house steward. A number of reasons to... to believe that, that the setting is the same, and, and Jesus is now providing further instruction to his disciples. So, 
Jesus is making a case in our passage today for stewardship. He wants his disciples to understand the significance of stewardship. And here Jesus turns to the disciples and, and he, he wants to provide direction for the life. Direction that is consistent with, with a relationship with God. In the story of the prodigal, the main issue that prevented the sons from enjoying a relationship with God was the issue of money. The younger son wanted his inheritance. Give me this inheritance now. I want to spend it on myself. I want to enjoy the freedoms of life. Give me what's coming to me. I want to be on my own. It was an issue of money. Money separated him initially from relationship with his dad. It, It was the same issue with the elder brother, the elder son. He was consumed with wanting money, and so he was willing to to slave his way uh, towards receiving this inheritance. And he he uses this complaint with his father, I I have been slaving for you all these years. Why? Because I want what's coming to me. If you just can't get out of the way fast enough, he was consumed with money. So Jesus is, is seeking to address this issue, this issue that consistently gets in the way of true discipleship, true stewardship. Maybe you've heard this, and maybe you've even adopted this policy in your own home as it relates to stewardship. My my dad used to say, always return something better than when you received it. You you ever hear that before? And so when it was about borrowing a car or borrowing a tool, he he made sure that he cleaned the outside of that car. He filled it up with gas. He he made sure that if any of the fluids were low, that he would would replenish those fluids in the car. He would uh, sweep and vacuum between all the grime in the back seats. He he would pick out the stuff from underneath. All those little treasures that had been left for people to discover. He, he, he wanted to make sure he was returning that car in a better situation or a better condition than when he received it. His thought was, I want them at some point, if they need a car wash, to ask if I borrow their car. <laughs> That's how good he did. Even when it came to staying in a hotel, he wanted to make sure that it almost looked uninhabited through the night. He would make the bed. He'd pick up the trash. He would wash the, the dishes. He would wipe down the sinks and even wipe out the, the, the bathtub after he was done. That's good stewardship. And that's what we've learned so often from, from our parents, from the people that we respect. I'm sure there have been times where you have lended things out, loaned things out. Um, maybe you have loaned out your car and then it comes back and you're like, I didn't really... Remember that scratch or that dent? Hmm, I wonder how that got there. Or, um, I, how in the world does it have a thousand more miles than when I gave it to you? Or where are you traveling to? Of course, that's an exaggeration. Or maybe you loaned out a tool and the blade was dull or it was rusty because it had been sitting outside. We understand this principle of stewardship. The point of the parable is to remind the disciples that the Christian life is a life of stewardship. It's a life of management. And in using the word stewardship, it's to see that all the possessions, all the money, all the privileges that we enjoy are things that have been stewarded to us, allocated to us, 
for us to invest for the sake of kingdom purposes. How does our stewardship show our allegiance? How does the way that we use the money or possessions that have been entrusted to us show where our heart is? How does it demonstrate that our heart is in heaven, not on things on this earth? How does it show that our loyalty is there, that our affections are there, that our desires are there? Stewardship is built in to, to all of the scripture from Jesus all the way to the very end. Of course, we understand the stewardship of spiritual gifts that Peter will talk about in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of God, of God's varied grace. This, by the way, is the same word from our text, oikonomos, stewardship, management. We understand the stewardship of time. Found in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 42. Jesus is, is speaking to his disciples. He says, stay dressed for action. Keep your, your um, lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? Whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Same word, stewardship, oikonomos, management. God has drawn us in to service for himself. We are stewarding the, the gifts that he's given to us. We're, we're stewarding the commands that he's given to us. We're, we're pursuing and following after the course or the mission that he's called us to. And as good stewards of the time that God has given to us, are we demonstrating a ready heart? Will God catch us in the act, as it were, when he comes back and he sees that we're doing the very things that he has called us to do? How are we stewarding the time that God has given to us? Of course, we need to be stewards of the gospel. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, this is how one should regard us as stewards or servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. We have been given the gospel. We have been entrusted with this mystery, as it were, of the message of God in the gift of salvation, that this message of sin and forgiveness and the death and resurrection of Christ, how are we stewarding the message that God has entrusted to us? How are we representing God in the way that we live? And of course, Jesus will bring it home because I think this is probably one of the, the, the most difficult for us living in, especially Western culture, stewards of our possessions. And Jesus will focus in and spend a great deal of time in Luke chapter 16 dealing with this particular issue. We, we see it in chapter 16, verse 11, when he says, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches. We understand this issue of stewardship. If we're not faithful in the superficial things, if we're not faithful in the little things, how could we ever imagine that God will entrust us with big things, with greater things, with higher things? So this lesson to the disciples is maximize 
the privilege and responsibility of the stewardship that's been entrusted to you. Think bigger than this world. Have have an eternal mindset, not a temporal one. Recognize the significance of stewardship. So as we now turn our attention to this parable, we're going to see some some characteristics of the steward that is in this story. This steward needs to understand that he answers to his master. Stewards answer to their masters. You are a steward if you are a follower of Jesus. And as a steward, there is accountability. As a steward, there is an entrustment. As a steward, you are going to be examined someday and your life will be examined and, and God will judge you based upon your stewardship. Now, of course, the righteousness of Christ clothes us. There will be an opportunity. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But as we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that some will be saved through fire. And what that means is that a lot of times the, the things that we do in this life as stewards of God, we're not representing God faithfully. And, and so those works that we do will be burned up. Jesus is after the kind of stewardship, the kind of responsibility that demonstrates a loyalty to Christ and a faithfulness with the things that we, we've been tr- entrusted with. Stewards answer to their masters. Look at this with me in verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the accounts of your management for you can no longer be a manager. This rich man was wealthy enough to have a household manager, which means that his Wealth was extensive enough that he had to have an individual who was overseeing various parts of his property, various parts of his, uh, of his assets. And here he has at least one manager who has the uh, authority to do transactions, to make deals with the debtors of this master and to represent him in these business deals. This manager that we see is over his farming operation. We're only given two examples, and we'll see this a little further as we go. But there were 100 measures of oil and 100 measures of wheat that we're going to find later on in our passage that uh, the creditors owe this master. Now, 100 measures of oil is the same as 875 gallons of oil. It would have represented the yield of 150 trees worth about 1,000 denarii, or three years' wages. 100 measures of wheat would have been a yield of about 100 acres of land, about 2,500 to 3,000 denarii. And by the way, a denarii is one day's wage. So 2,500 to 3,000 days, which is 8 to 10 years on an average person's income to pay back this loan. It was a significant amount of property. Massive wealth that this master had in his possession and that this manager was, was responsible for. And we find that there are charges that were brought against this manager. The manager had gained a reputation. It was not that the rich man discovered the problem, but that a report was made about him. The, the, these charges were brought against him. 
It's the same word for accusation. It's the Greek word diabolo. This word we also is translated in scripture as slander. Someone came, brought charges with a hostile intent. They, they knew the reputation of the master was in jeopardy in the community, and they were concerned about his reputation in the community. They brought charges against this manager who was wasting possessions, and the, man, the master went to town. His business ethic of this manager was known. Whatever he was doing would not only impact future business deals, but would also bring a black eye to the master himself. His reputation in the community was at stake. And apparently this mismanagement was widely known. It was spread throughout the village. It was something that was was well-documented, well-known. The main accusation against the manager was that he was wasting his master's goods. In the Greek, this is a present active participle, and the significance of that means it was an ongoing activity, not just something that happened in the past, but this regular, consistent, ongoing kind of behavior. It marked him as a manager. It's the word for scatter, to disperse. Again, mentioned earlier as as the same as the prodigal son. So Jesus is, is creating this connection between the prodigal's lifestyle and this manager's lifestyle. Making poor decisions, maybe spending the money on himself, whatever it was, the point was, the money was not his, but he had no problem wasting it away. How did he not understand that he was a steward of somebody else's possessions? How did he not get it that these were not actually his possessions to begin with? Probably the same reason why when we see and look at our possessions and our money and our property and our possessions, we have the same kind of posture towards God. We do not see that these are stewarded to us. They're allocated to us. They're given to us as opportunities then to invest in things that represent our Savior. The same was happening of this manager, this dishonest manager who was squandering his master's property. So the master terminates him as an employee. He, he asks him to close out the books. He asks him to resolve any of the outstanding balances, to turn over the badge, as it were, and to walk him down the hall and, and escort him outside the building. His time of employment was over. So when the master tells him to give an account of his stewardship, he's requesting the books and the the financial accounts or the financial statements, as it were, to to close out his transactions. So what will he do? He's been caught (laughs) red-handed. How's he going to respond? Well, we get this answer in the next few verses, in verses 3 to 7. We see the steward's cunning business deal in verses 3 to 7. Notice, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is, is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm, I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what I shall do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. He begins to have a conversation with himself, much like what the prodigal did in the pig pen. He, he comes to his senses. He realizes the desperation of his situation. He he remembers the benevolence of his father, and he's willing to engage in a new way. Well, 
in this parable, the same kind of thing is happening. My, my management is done. My employment is over. How am I going to help myself and provide some security for the future? So he, he's, he's working through the scenarios. He knows some things about himself. I'm not going to dig. I don't like manual labor. I'm not going to stoop to that level. I've been managing these massive assets. I'm not about to resort or stoop to the level of digging or manual labor. But he also knows he's too proud to beg. Unlike the prodigal who, when he came to his senses, was willing to accept any of the labor that was required to do honest work for his father. So what is he going to do? Well, we find that answer in verses 5 to 7. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now his disregard for his master comes right out into full view. He's not hiding it anymore. And it really doesn't matter. As far as he's concerned, he's already lost his job. He doesn't have to please his master anymore. He only has to consider what's happening in the future. So he's going to do whatever it takes to ensure that there's some safety net, some way for him to, to have his accounts settled and, 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 and to make sure that he's, he's accommodating himself for the future. He uses his leverage in this final deal to maximize his future prospects. Maybe he can get some kickback. Maybe he can earn some favors. The phrase one by one indicates that while we see two examples in our text, there were many others as well. He summoned each of them one by one, his master's debtors. And then he reduces what they were obliged to pay in the first situation, reducing it by half. In the second situation, reducing it by 20%. And it was, a, it was a way to gain favors with those individuals. This, this term, reciprocity, to exchange, the exchange of help for the promise of future benefits or advantages, to gain a favor, to earn a favor, to place someone in debt by granting them special privileges. It was, it was built into that culture. What, what do I do to make sure that this person is now obligated to me, indebted to me in some way? We see this concept happening all the way through the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 6, verses 31 to 35, we we find it front and center. It says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So this dishonest manager understands the culture And he works the system to his own advantage. He understands his current position, however temporary, may may, uh, be leveraged in such a way so that he can help himself and establish his future. 
where he lives and, and, and how, he, how he survives. But some commentators have wondered how he was able to, to do this and, and then also be commended. Was he charging interest that then he eliminates? And that's probably not the case because charging interest in the Jewish culture was forbidden. Some, all, some commentators have also wondered if he was just taking his own payment, his own cut off the top and, and, and giving a special deal that he wouldn't be paid for. But we, we find from verse 8 that he's called dishonest. This Greek word, adikia, which is without righteousness, without justice. There's no indication that he has any concern for anyone but himself. The indication that we get from the text is that he's, he, he is without righteousness, without justice. There's, there's not an ounce of morality in him at all. Only this self-preserving nature. Whatever he did was wicked. There's no shred of decency. So we have to assume that, that whatever was going on was just this own, his own cunning in taking advantage of his position to secure his own future. He took advantage of the situation. All of the loss was absorbed by the master himself. So what will the master do? How how will the master respond? Well, we find his response in verse 8. Notice with me. The master's compliment. (laughs) The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The master's compliment. The response of the, of the master continues to follow this pattern that we see in the father. We see the shocking response of grace and benevolence and forgiveness of the father. His desire to welcome into relationship. And, and here this same uh, pattern is being established. No one could have ever been prepared for this response. The master commended This shrewd, dishonest manager? What was appropriate? What was expected? We look back at Matthew chapter 18, and we see, again, accounts that are being settled in that parable that Jesus tells. And and remember, in the settling of those accounts, uh, the the master is going to send this, this servant to a debtor's prison. That was what was expected. Here, the master commends His shrewdness. The response of this master in this parable is so troubling that a good number of commentators struggle to resolve the difficulties. How how is it possible that this master could do this? How is it possible that Jesus could describe in this parable a dishonest, unscrupulous kind of manager that is dealing with his master's stuff in this way? The word commend is the word to praise. It's the word to applaud or approve. How is it possible? When on the surface, this manager has confiscated significant funds from his master. Overall, the loss would have been significant. 500 denarii worth of oil, about 500 denarii worth of wheat, about 1,000 days, as it were, of income that was lost, But it's important to notice that the master does not commend his dishonesty. It's important to notice the master commends his cunning, his shrewdness. 
It's a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. It's used here. It's the word for wisdom. You might call it street smarts, as it were. The master recognizes that this manager has positioned himself well. And as Jesus will often do throughout his ministry, he will use the lesson of lesser to greater. We saw that in Luke chapter 6 when I was reading through that. And the point is this. If even the world understands how to use the possessions and the money of this world to establish relationships, if even people who have no sense of morality recognize how to position themselves to enjoy the benefits later, how much more should the sons of light, those who are stewards of kingdom things, how much more should they understand the temporary nature of the possessions today and put it to work in investing for eternal purposes? That's the point. And that's the lesson on stewardship we arrive at in verse 9. This lesson on stewardship. Jesus says this, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus is often using this, 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 this uh, point or, or the logic of lesser to greater. If the people of this world understand the significance of how to use money to gain them favors, how much more should those who are sons of the light, who are sons of God, recognize their stewardship, put that stewardship to work in kingdom, in kingdom joy, in kingdom benefits? Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupts, where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupts, where thieves do not break through and steal. That's the principle. The principle of understanding stewardship. The principle of understanding the limited temporary nature of the money that we've been entrusted with, the possessions that God has entrusted to us, and recognizing the privilege and responsibility of investing that into greater things. As Jesus says at the end of verse 8, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, and it will fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, when I was an engineer at Boeing and uh, making a good deal of money, I had some people come alongside me and say, hey, you should invest for the future. Uh, I, the, Boeing has a, a great 401k program. You, you, you can have it matched up to 5%. So I, I, I maxed that out every single week. There, we lived a simple life and we invested in the future. That was what the plan was. So, but as I look at my 401k now, I'm greatly disappointed. You see, there's not security that's built up in the money of this age. There, there's only hoping that those investments will produce some level of comfort or satisfaction in the future. 
And by the way, I I do think there is wisdom in thinking ahead. There's wisdom in planning for the future. There's wisdom in in, in stewarding the money that God has given to us so that we can help and encourage our children in in the various um, pursuits that they have. But, But if we understand that from a physical perspective, how much more should we recognize that investment of what Jesus refers to is this, this unhealthy wealth. What, what, is, what is the word that he uses here in our passage? Unrighteous wealth, the possessions that we have, the, the temporary nature of the money and possessions that we have. How much more should we recognize the value of laying up to a guaranteed inheritance in heaven? How much more should we recognize the significance of of investing in gospel ministry? Relationships where people will come to know Jesus Christ, where we can spend eternity with him in heaven. How how do we create the atmosphere even within, within our own homes? of addressing the significance of, of generosity and benevolence and hospitality and sharing and, and, and extending loans that we don't necessarily expect to get money back on, to, to lend things out that we may not ever get back for the sake of establishing relationships and growing the kingdom and, and building the the inheritance, as it were, uh, of future dwellings in heaven, uh, of those we're going to be neighbors with in heaven because they have come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the guaranteed investments of this world that, that will produce an eternal nature. Jesus is not, not commending the steward's dishonesty. He's commending the, the steward's insight into how to use the money that he had available to him to establish future friendships and relationships. And so the question for us is, how do we, as the sons of light, how do we, how do we understand that principle and put that to work in our own lives? If the world does these things, if it's inherent to them, if it's, if it's second nature to them to, to use money to establish friendships, how much more should the people of God recognize the significance of the stewardship we've been given and the things that God has allocated to us to benefit the kingdom in a way of drawing individuals to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Next week, we're going to focus on verses 10 to 13. And my goal for next week is to provide a really tangible, really practical ways that we can put this to work. Because we can talk about theories and we can talk about doctrines and truths, but, but how do we really wear this? How do, we, how do we really work this out in our everyday life? How do we invest in kingdom things? How do we use the money that's been entrusted to us to advance the gospel. So next week, we're going to come back to this passage, verses 10 to 13, and explore how can we practically be stewards that represent our master. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way that you even use secular examples really is is a word of admonition, a word of rebuke. Help us to be better than this world. 
Help us to understand the temporary nature of, of the monetary system, the possessions that are here. Help us to think about future things. Think about eternal things. Think about bigger and greater things. Eternal things, spiritual things. And may we use the entrustment that you've given to us in the here and now to advance the cause that you've called us to. To draw others to see the wonder of who you are. To partner with you in the gospel work. To understand the significance of of the entrustment that we have and in maximizing that entrustment as stewards of God so that we can demonstrate that we are faithful to be entrusted with more. God, I pray that you'd help us in this, in these next couple of weeks, not only to understand these truths, but to put those truths to work. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a good week.